Hi, I'm Chloe Ward. And I'm Emma Shortis. And welcome to this special mini episode of the Barely Getting By podcast. So in our last two episodes, we've talked a lot about Brexit. We've also talked a lot about Trump. And we thought we'd do this shorter episode to bring people up to speed on a couple of big events that have happened in the last week. Yeah, a fair bit's happened. A fair bit's happened, not least of all has been Alexander Downer's spectacular intervention in US politics. Em, do you want to tell me a little bit about that? Yes, so so Alexander Downer, former foreign minister in the Howard Liberal government, is back in the headlines because way back in 2016, I think, he had a drink with a Trump kind of affiliate, I suppose you'd call him, George Papadopoulos in the Kensington Wine Rooms in London. Uh, Papadopoulos told him that they had dirt on Hillary Clinton thanks to the Russians and Downer sort of thought, hmm, maybe I should tell the Americans about this and kicked off the Mueller investigation. Right. So he's back because it's just come to light that Trump and Scott Morrison had a phone call in which Trump asked Morrison to help for help in the investigation of the Mueller investigation, which started with Downer. Okay. Was this before or after Scott Morrison went to the US? It was before. That's very interesting. It is interesting timing. So we've also discovered today that Ambassador Joe Hockey had written to the Attorney General in the United States, William Barr, basically offering to help with any investigation after Trump had kind of cracked it with Australia. And that's what resulted in the phone call, which, as you just pointed out, happened before Morrison was invited to this ritzy tour of D.C., Okay, so this is fascinating. It's very much a developing story. It's also not at all what we were going to talk about because we were going to talk about a couple of other big events in the past week. First of all, the announcement by Nancy Pelosi that the Democrats will be launching impeachment proceedings against President Trump and the Supreme Court's decision in Britain that... Boris Johnson's prorogation, which led to the Brexit crisis we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, was actually unlawful. So British Parliament is now back in session and the game in Brexit has changed again completely. Yeah, fun times. Yeah, it's been been a fun couple of weeks on both sides of the Atlantic. (laughs) So, okay, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about Trump and the impeachment proceedings. So this all started with a memo a memo about a phone conversation that Trump had. Could you tell me more about that? Yeah, that's right. So Trump had a phone conversation with the uh, Ukrainian leader, Volodymyr Zelensky. I hope I've got that right. In which Trump has basically, um, well, he's directly asked him for a favour in investigating Joe Biden. So we have a memo, or this came to light because of a whistleblower, who became aware of the conversation, was very concerned about the President of the United States asking a foreign government for help, basically, in an election campaign, which is totally illegal. <laughs> Even I know that's totally yeah. illegal. I'm not, I'm not an expert in American politics Even or for Trump, law this by is any like means. a new level yeah, of illegality. Yeah. Um, and so we, so we have what's happened since, since his whistleblower complaint came to light is we've had a telcon released, which is basically a memorandum written by people listening to the phone call in the Situation Room, which is the room you might recognise from your, any, any Hollywood movie about the president. Everyone goes into the Situation Room. From the West Wing or... Yeah, yeah that's yeah. exactly right. And so this is actually a summary of that phone call. It's not a transcript. People keep calling it a transcript. It's not. It's an editorialised summary by, by people who are... Um, you know, on Trump's side, and it's still pretty damning. 
And so basically as a result of this, because it's so egregious, because it's Trump kind of doing a, a mob shakedown of a foreign leader in order to gain advantage in an upcoming election, I think Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats were kind of left with no choice but to pursue impeachment. Yeah, so tell me more about that, because impeachment has been on the cards for some time, but to this point, Nancy Pelosi and the Democratic leadership, they've resisted calls for 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 impeachment from, say, people like Elizabeth Warren, who's one of the presidential candidates in 2020, and people on the left of the party like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. It is, it's part of this kind of bigger divide, I think, that we're seeing in the Democrats about how to deal with Trump, you know, about whether we can kind of go back to normal, get rid of him, go back to normal, or whether we're dealing with kind of bigger structural issues. So the the fight around impeachment, I think, has kind of fallen around the same sides. And and to be fair, like we've people have been talking about impeachment since even before Trump was elected. <laughs> there were suggestions that he would be impeached because of his history and because of all this thing, these things that he's done, all the corruption, etc. Um, but until now, the Democrats, or the, I guess the, the Democratic leadership embodied by Nancy Pelosi has been reluctant to do it because, well, I guess for a few reasons, because it is, I think you can't understate how serious it is in American politics to pursue impeachment. We're quite used to in, in a Westminster system replacing a prime minister kind of fairly easily. You know, it's not a huge deal for us. But because the the executive, the office of the president, is separate from Congress, it's not connected to Congress in the same way that parliaments and prime ministers are, actually kind of getting rid of this office, this exercising this power by Congress is really significant. Like the office of president is is absolutely sacred. You only have to think about the way Americans talk about Ronald Reagan or Abraham Lincoln or whatever to know that it has a kind of godlike status. Well, I mean... I don't think it's wrong to say that the president, the office of the president, is like an elected king. Yeah, exactly right. And and I mean, Trump has Trump has taken that probably further than most other presidents. But even with Trump in the White House, this is still a massive step. So Pelosi's been reluctant to do it for that reason because it is so incredibly radical a step. But also, I think for for political, I guess strategic calculations, thinking, you know, this is going to increase division, solidify Trump's base. It, the, the potential for it to backfire, I think, is, politically speaking, I think is is real for Democrats. Um, but as I said, you know, I think now they've been left with no choice. Okay. So what do the impeachment proceedings look like from here? Okay. So basically, um, impeachment starts in the House, in the House of Representatives, where Pelosi is Speaker. They're already doing a bunch of investigations into Trump. The, the House is run by kind of committees around different thematic areas. Those committees will continue their investigations. They'll eventually draw up what's called Articles of Impeachment, which which is an, essentially a piece of law that outlines why the president needs to be impeached. And that will go to a vote in the on the floor of the House of Representatives. We can you know, assuming it gets to that point, we can pretty safely assume it will get through because the Democrats have a majority and they just need a simple majority for that. What happens then is it goes to the Senate and the Senate can decide whether or not to conduct conduct an impeachment trial based on those articles of impeachment. So the Senate kind of turns into a court, basically, that tries the president. And then that requires, in order to find the president guilty and remove the president from office, that requires a two-thirds majority. So that's a very high bar. It's a very high threshold, deliberately so, again, because this is a kind of um, option of last resort, I guess. And as it stands at the moment, they're not going to reach that bar in the Senate. They're not going to hit a two-thirds majority. Again, things could change. I'm not, I'm not predicting that that's the situation. But that's why, you know, you might have heard people say that um, – 
nobody's ever been removed from office by impeachment. So, so President Bill Clinton, for example, was impeached by the House. So articles of impeachment were adopted by the House, but then the Senate acquitted him. So he wasn't removed from office. For Richard Nixon, the the House of Representatives didn't even get to the point of a vote on articles of impeachment because he, um, well, he dumped them first, basically. Yeah, like I was thinking because the obvious example there and the obvious comparison is with Richard Nixon and yep. Nixon resigned yep. before he had the opportunity to be impeached. Exactly. Nixon he saw the writing on the wall and, yeah. and decided to not be impeached because, you know, resigning looks slightly better, I think, than being kicked okay. out of office. And if we're going along with that comparison, what did popular opinion look like? That is, yeah, that, I think that's a really interesting one because one of the arguments against pursuing impeachment is that it's really unpopular because it is such a last resort and is seen as kind of going against the democratic will of the people or whatever. Having said that, it was very unpopular to pursue impeachment against Richard Nixon in the early 1970s. But as the House did its investigation, as those hearings were televised and there was a slow drip of information, evidence every day, impeachment suddenly became quite popular which is part of the reason that Nixon resigned. The, the kind of opposite happened with Clinton. So he was pretty unpopular for, for other reasons, I suppose, well, because he was kind of scandal-plagued. Um, but as that investigation went on and it became clear that this was about, you know, Republicans and staunch Clinton haters, I think, attempting to bring down a president for something that was kind of, beneath, I guess, beneath the conduct of the office but not an impeachable offence. And because it was kind of so sexually explicit, some of the evidence that was put before Congress, actually Clinton became much more popular. So he left office. He wasn't impeached. That, As I said, that attempt failed and he left office with some of his highest approval ratings ever. So there's there's quite some, some I guess, contradictory lessons of history going on here and people are picking and choosing what they like. But I guess, you know, I would say that the Trump situation is is pretty different. Yeah, and I suppose for any politician who was looking to impeach Trump, what they probably they understand that the Senate is too high a bar, like there's too high a threshold yeah. there for him to be successfully tried in that trial. Yeah. So what they will be hoping for is more material to come out in the impeachment investigation yeah, and exactly. maybe turn the tide of popular opinion decisively totally. against him. And and put Republicans under pressure, Republicans who are in swing districts, of which there are a few, put them under pressure, make them go on the record in support of Trump in, in not supporting this impeachment proceedings. But I think it's also about, you know, like the, a lot of the talk is about political strategy and that's that's totally understandable. But I think this is also a kind of it's become a much bigger question about the integrity of the American political system. You know, these accusations, these allegations against Trump using the office of the president in that way are incredibly serious and speak to the integrity, not only of the office of the president, but basically of the whole United States political system, which is why I think now that argument about impeachment has won out because there's been a realisation that if not, if not this, then what? And the system has to be able to kind of fight back against this kind of egregious corruption. Yeah, and I think that definitely brings to mind for me a lot of what's going on in the UK where what we're seeing is a lot of people, they're talking talking about events like their strategic masterminds, like they're, you know, three steps ahead. But sometimes you actually have to just do what's right to defend democratic institutions and to preserve them for the coming generations. Yeah, look, I I think that is exactly right that it, 
it does require a kind of courage and leadership and a courage in, of institutions in order to respond to this. Um, which kind of brings me to my question, my questions for you around Brexit on the other side of the Atlantic, because I think what I've been struck by talking about American politics is, you know, impeachment is one of those quirks of the American political system that's kind of difficult to explain because it's not something we're used to and it's quite unusual. And I think that's probably also true of the way that the Supreme Court operates in the United Kingdom. Yes. So could you, can you explain to us what what role does the Supreme Court play and what is this decision about? Well, I think the first thing to mention is that Britain has only had a Supreme Court since 2009. Really? Yes. I legitimately did not know I that. kid you not. They've only had, which which does give you, I guess, an immediate sense of the fact that the Supreme Court doesn't play an outsized role in British politics in the way that it does in the US. Yep. So in Britain, this goes back to what I spoke about a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Brexit, which is this uh, parliamentary, parliamentary sovereignty, which is this overriding governing principle of the Westminster system as it operates in Britain. Second thing to understand is that Britain doesn't have a constitution. Right. Well, it doesn't have a written constitution. Okay. okay. So unlike, say, in the US, unlike here in Australia, Britain doesn't have that codified set of rules that they go to as a last resort when trying to determine these big questions of political conduct and of, and, and of parliamentary conduct. Okay? Okay. So that's part of the reason why this is so complicated. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, I did say that I, didn't, I thought that the prorogation was legal. Remember? Yes. Yeah, yeah, you did. And I'm happy to own that I was wrong there. And the reason I said that and the reason why I wasn't confident of any challenge to the prorogation getting up in the courts was because of precisely this principle of parliamentary sovereignty and also because British courts, including this Supreme Court, which is quite new, are notoriously reticent to intervene in political in, in political affairs. Okay. So... When the case against the prorogation first went to the English to the English courts, they said no, and that was for precisely the reason that courts do not interfere in political matters in the UK. Okay, so they said it was fine. They said it was fine. Okay. Okay. Then went to Scotland. Scotland said oh. actually no, there is a case there, and they ruled against they ruled against Boris Johnson and the government and said the prorogation was illegal. Okay, that's how it ends up at the Supreme Court. Right. What happened last week is the Supreme Court came back with a judgment which was incredibly clever. It was really smart what they did because it was a very limited but clear defence of parliamentary sovereignty. So if you read the ruling very carefully, they there are a few things they don't do and there's one thing they do do, and that's absolutely critical. First of all, and this is contrary to a lot of headlines and a lot of reports I read after the Supreme Court's decision, the ruling was not that Boris Johnson lied to the Queen. So he didn't lie to the Queen? They did not adjudicate on that. Okay. That was not even a question that they, and it wasn't a question they had to answer once they actually made their judgment. Okay, so the Queen didn't even come to, didn't even come into this. The Queen, and I think that was probably politically, that's probably about protecting, the, the, protecting the palace and the monarchy. So one, Boris Johnson, we don't know if he lied to the Queen. The the, the Supreme Court did not make a ruling on that. Right. Second of all, they actually didn't touch his reasoning. Okay, so one of the issues that was coming up in the news was about, was about his, you know, I guess, suspicion of Boris Johnson's mendacious reasoning and the fact that he he issued this prorogation just to dismiss the just to dismiss Parliament so he could get Brexit through on his mm-hmm. terms. The court again didn't have any didn't have much to say on that. 
okay? What they did have something to say on was the effect of the prorogation. And they said that the effect of this lengthy prorogation was to frustrate the proper workings of parliament. Parliament being sovereign, parliament being, you know, the, I guess... The ultimate, the the absolute in in the British political system. Okay. okay, so it was because of the length of the prorogation. Well, it was about the fact that it frustrated Parliament without any justification being given. Okay, okay. So what what the government did deliver to the courts was very thin, very flimsy evidence around why they'd required this lengthy prorogation. So there could have been circumstances where you know I think it was five weeks that they were looking for where that could have been justified, but the government didn't provide it, and that being the case they weren't able to justify frustrating Parliament and the proper workings of democracy for such a long period. Okay, so so I guess you weren't entirely wrong in that that prorogation itself is not illegal. That is within the powers of the of the prime yeah. minister. But it was this particular case and the reasoning yes. or the justification that was given that yeah. was wrong. Yeah, and what I didn't expect was I guess the court's willingness to step in to defend democracy in that way because it does. You know, one of the potential accusations that could then be made about it against it which has which has happened which has occurred in i guess the right right-wing sections of the media is that the courts are becoming political that the courts are becoming american so oh, i see yeah so that's a, and that that doesn't stand up it was a very limited it was quite it was quite a conservative judgment in its way in, sa- in the same time at the same time as it being quite radical in terms of its yeah. defense of parliament but they did what they did what they could and what they had to do to defend that principle of parliamentary sovereignty. Okay, so so what then are the consequences of that decision? The immediate consequence is that parliament is back in session. Okay. Okay. So the effect of the ruling was that the prorogation didn't happen. So parliament is back. Right, so it's like wiped from history. Yes. Yes, it, <laughs> okay. it is. It is effectively so right. I think um I believe it was, I think it was in the judgment or is in one of the comment, comment pieces I was reading about the judgment where they actually drew the analogy. They said it was as if they walked into the House of Laws to declare the prorogation, but the piece of paper they read out from was completely blank. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's that's cool power to have. Yeah. So, look, the there are a few effects from it. The first, first of all, that Parliament's back and Parliament is now, it's giving the opposition and its anti-Brexit MPs opportunity to regroup and plan out their strategies for the next few weeks. Um, I think one of the big effects of it is that it does, it kind of shames Boris Johnson and the government. And I don't think that they're going to be quite so audacious in the future. So we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago and how the, the, Opposition MPs had basically got together and forced the government to seek an extension to the Brexit deadline to January, and that's if Boris Johnson can't get a deal with the EU. Okay, there's been a lot of suspicion that Boris Johnson might ignore that that law yeah. and that ruling that came from Parliament. I think he's significantly less likely to ignore that now because that will go to the courts. The courts have proven themselves willing to defend Parliament's Parliament's edicts and Parliament's laws, so they would probably just send that straight back. Okay. So does that is Johnson finally imploding? Potentially, but I think that this is also an incredibly dangerous time for British politics. Um, in when Parliament went back last week in the House of Commons, there was very a very lengthy, very virulent, quite violent debate in the House of Commons. Um, Boris Johnson and his allies have certainly ramped up their language. Um, they are now calling the, the Ben Bill, which is the bill that to delay Brexit, they're calling that the Surrender Bill. So 
I think it's put it's backed them into a corner, but we don't know what they're going to do then. I think they're quite likely to go nuclear on Brexit, which right. could have really dangerous consequences. Okay, so they they're using the language of war, and there's been a fair bit of pushback in absolutely. Parliament, hasn't there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, Boris Johnson, he very, I guess, both clumsily and totally disrespectfully invoked the memory of Joe Cox, who was a Labour MP who was murdered in the in the week before the Brexit the Brexit referendum in June twenty sixteen. Um, her friends and her allies in, in, in Parliament have been very quick to jump to her defence as, you know, she she's not a person who should be invoked um, as a reason for why Boris Johnson should be able to push through Brexit on his terms. Yeah. That's yeah, because he basically said, to, you know, in order to honour her memory, we have to have Brexit, yeah, didn't which, is, again, it's that thing of Boris Johnson. He he phrases things clumsily, but also in ways that are incredibly self-serving. So yeah, well, I mean, yeah, that's it was it was appalling. Yeah, 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 it was it was totally despicable. So I think that so there's that there's that issue, which is Boris Johnson causing deliberate a deliberate offence to people on the Remain side and people and you know the friends of Joe, of Joe Cox and. There's also this longer-term issue, which is the possibility that he's building up a myth around Brexit. So if things don't go to plan, if, they, if say, they get the extension, if there was a second referendum and Britain chose to remain in the EU, then he's building up a series of myths that can continue to be weaponised by the right and that's dangerous, okay? So it's going to have it's, – it this language could have corrosive effects on, in an ongoing way on British political life. Okay, and when you say dangerous, do you mean – are you talking about the danger of, of violence? Um, I am talking about the danger of violence. So that's the other, th- the other thing that was th- really spooked and alarmed a lot of MPs was that this language, it is violent, it is inciting to violence. The evidence of Joe Cox's murder was that she was murdered by, uh, by a right-wing by, – basically by a right-wing terrorist who was screaming, I think it was like pro, pro-Brexit slogans as he murdered her. Um, there, a lot of MPs, especially especially women MPs, have been facing death threats, and that's definitely ramped up in the last week in the last week or so. So we have this long term potential for the escalation of language and a dangerous political situation, but we also do have this short term emergency for a lot of MPs who are facing serious threats of violence. Wow, which is you know unfortunately very similar to what's happening again on the other side of the Atlantic. So, in amongst all of this. Um, you know, I guess, kind of hilarity with Alexander Downer and and that going on. You know, Trump Trump is he's stepping it up once again, and just in the last couple of days has has basically tweeted out. They were they were quotes from a um, a pastor who was on TV. Of course, he was quoting someone who was on Fox News, but he basically tweeted out that you know, should the president be impeached, the greatest president in the history of the United States be impeached, there will be a civil war in the United States. And that is, you know, I think it's easy to kind of dismiss that as, you know, Trump being Trump. But given, much like in Britain, given what we know about how Trump has encouraged actual instances of white supremacist violence, that is kind of terrifying. Given the situation in the United States, the president saying a civil war will ensue is deadly serious. I completely agree, and I don't. And that's not to say that we should be treating this as a likelihood. I mean, I still think that civil war in the UK is a very, very vanishingly remote possibility, but it's it's still one we need to take seriously. Yeah, I think especially when the heads of state are, are talking about it in in such kind of open and brazen terms. So. On that bleak note, um, that concludes our Trump and Brexit update. We really do hope to 
bring you some happier news maybe in the next few weeks, but got to say, um, from the sounds of it, that's not going to be forthcoming. Yeah, I'm not sure we can promise that. Thanks for listening to this Barely Getting By update.